You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. Well, we crossed the 1 million vaccine doses administered this week, uh, but over 60s are still waiting weeks for their SMS after registering on the EVDS system. And there are still reports of people just uh, walking into sites and getting the jab without one. This is the country's J&J rollout has been delayed due to possible contamination with AstraZeneca ingredient feedstock in Baltimore. Uh, so things uh, are a little bit haphazard in the rollout, uh, but if we look at what's going on internationally, it's all about jobs in the U.S. One commentator on Bloomberg made the following statement, with seemingly all systems on the go on the jobs front, the economy is flashing some very real signs that this isn't just a comeback. It's uh, expansion mode, and that could certainly be on the horizon. Uh, this could well mean more pressure on the Fed to act, while UK companies hired permanent staff at the fastest pace in 23 years last month, according to the FT. And we've got uh, Joe Biden pitching to Republicans the idea of a 15% minimum corporate tax in a major concession to win support for his bipartisan infrastructure bill. And uh, this also as the G7 meet today to discuss revamping the global tax system. It's early stages still, but this is more likely just a process to fill out where there's any common ground following Janet Yellen's proposals of a global minimum. Global food prices have also extended their rally to the highest in almost a decade, heightening concerns over bulging grocery bills at a time when economies are struggling to overcome the COVID crisis. A UN gauge of world food costs climbed for a 12-month straight month in May, its longest stretch in a decade boosting costs for global livestock producers as well. And in a move uh, no other country in the world has so far taken in the fight against climate change, the European Commission wants to introduce a system imposing a penalty for bringing into the bloc emissions embedded in goods that also include fertilizers and electricity, according to a person familiar with the proposals due to be unveiled next month. So the ESG train is certainly steaming ahead. To review the week that was, I'm joined now by Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo Asset Managers, Raymond Parsons, Professor in the School of Business and Governance at Northwest University, and Nazmira Muller, Head of SA Investments at 91. Warwick, let's just start with the US jobs number. Uh, a decent beat yesterday, and, and markets sold off as a result. While BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is saying that investors may be underestimating the potential for a spike in inflation. And just to quote him, he says, most people haven't had a 40-plus year career, and they've only seen declining inflation over the last 30 years. He was talking at a virtual conference hosted by Deutsche Bank, and he reckons this is going to be a pretty big shock when inflation does start to poke its head up. The debate rages on, uh, but let's just say we do start seeing this inflation as more than transitory. How should investors be positioning themselves? I think in terms of uh, jobs data, what I saw yesterday was a metropolitan jobs report, which is an April number. Uh, I'm looking for non-farm payrolls which is expected to be in the order of 670,000, but let's see how, how it actually goes. I think in terms of the actual spike in inflation, one needs to be quite careful. Um, I, I remember in the early uh, noughties, the equivalent trade of, of, of shorting Japanese bonds, um, which was, I suppose, effectively saying that inflation is going to come back, and of course it didn't. Uh, and that trade became known as the widowmaker for, for good reasons. I mean, it left trader after trader just dead on the field. Um, I think in terms of how does an investor actually position themselves in relation to this, 
Um, I think there's, you can either be defensive or you can go offensive. Now, the defensive would be the likes of gold, tips, or, uh, God forbid, cryptos. But, I mean, effectively, that's um, some kind of um, attempt to, 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 to buy an inflation-hedged uh, asset and, and wait it out. But the thing is, I think those trades are largely crowded. Uh, and accordingly, I would have said that the, the offensive approach, which is basically go for economic growth, and that means the likes of value stocks, uh, minings, and assorted other cyclicals that are trading below their balance sheet NAVs. I mean, a lot of the, those three categories I've described have been thoroughly beaten up um, within the COVID environment, and some of them still finding their feet, some of them mm. investors still trying to figure out what's the actual position looking like there. Uh, and I think that they are categories that um, have, have scope to expand, especially since central banks and governments are not taking chances with this recovery. And inflation discussion, or no inflation discussion, they are going to allow inflation to run hot if they have to. doesn't mean they will, mm. but if they have to, they'll do it. Now, Zmira, on that point, where do you sit in the spectrum between Larry Fink, this is going to be a massive shock, uh, and Jay Powell? Nothing to see here, folks. This is all transitory. Michael, I think inflation right now is a cyclical issue. The question is, does it become structural? Does it become the Larry Fink concern? And I, I, I think we, we need to think about, could there be a short-term spike in inflation? Could inflation spike higher than we expected? Sure. Commodity prices are going up much more than expected. I mean, I got asked about tin prices, which have doubled uh, a couple of days ago. So we're, we're at that point in time where you're seeing signs of inflation through a number of different asset prices. But I think in order for inflation to become structural, you actually need an effective decision by the politicians, by society, that they're willing to wear higher inflation. And in the 60s, that trade-off was, we think jobs are more important than inflation. So therefore, the central bank, when inflation started to pick up, didn't react as fast as possible because they were always focusing on jobs. This time around, it seems like jobs are not going to be the issue, but maybe the issue this time around is income inequality. Because we've seen the first real signs of the closure of income inequality over the last year in the US for the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And if that becomes the priority, then I think you start to see this risk of structural inflation. But we haven't seen signs of that decision being made as yet. And it's so interesting you mentioned that uh, the, the Uber and Lyft numbers, the increases over the Memorial Day long weekend, was something like 40% uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the cost to hire an Uber and a Lyft. Why? Because uh, Americans are getting their $300 a month check. They're sitting on the sofa. Uh, Uber can't find drivers. And so it's driving up the cost of those things. And just the you know, stories abound of sign-on bonuses just to get people to come to work. So that, uh, that income inequality story is going to be very interesting uh, to monitor. Raymond, uh, I want to bring this uh, back into the South African context now. And obviously, having had a soft landing going back to an adjusted level two. Uh, where do we go from here? Is this the beginning of the end of bad news on the pandemic front? How are you reading it? Well, Michael, I think there are two issues here as we look at the situation in the middle of the year. The first is we've got to ensure the effective rollout of the vaccine. It's been said more than once, but we need to do that in ways that will now also maximize the role of the private sector to expedite what needs to be done. There is a role already for the private sector, but I think it needs to be enlarged in view of the urgency 
of the third wave. And the second is we need to manage expectations better as to where we are and where we might be in the next few months. Because as we've said before, we recognize now that, uh, that a, a healthy economy and a healthy society are interdependent and we simply have to get there and this balance or, or this test is going to befall us in the next few months. So what we need to say is also we're at a point where the various economic support measures have also come to an end and so it's tremendously important that, that we now build on where we are to see how we're going to get through the next few months. We know that from an economic point of view, there's been a strong rebound. I think that most economists and others are expecting a, a growth rate of 4% or even 4% plus. It is, a, it is a rebound, but we are still vulnerable if we don't handle the third wave well. Mm -hmm. So I think really this whole balance between lives and livelihoods is still very important. And I, if I could recycle what I've said before, it's even more important now, the three V's that I've referred to. That is vigilance, vaccination, and Willendela being operational. We need all three of those pillars in order to capitalize, not only on the rebound, hmm. but in order to manage the third wave, both from an economic and a health point of view. And for, uh, you're building on the, the, the V theme, we are seeing a V-shaped recovery in developed markets. It's in developing markets where we're really uh, seeing a divergence at the moment, Warwick. But that hasn't stopped the RAND from enjoying incredible period of strength over the last uh, month or so. Uh, you know, trading uh, through 13 Rand 50 for the first time in some time this week. And many looking at uh, the charts and saying, Right, uh, the, 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 the RAND looks like it's at a level now where you should be buying dollars. You, you should take the strength and, uh, and get some assets offshore. Uh, how do you read it? Because, you know, the commodity cycle is very supportive. The economic data, to Raymond's point, has been very supportive as well. But then we also see ESCOM trying its hardest to uh, put, any, uh, put its spanner into the works when, uh, when the works are actually powered. Michael, I, I often find... Um, myself somewhat bemused by the fascination that South Africans tend to have with the dollar-rand relationship. Um, I mean, they tend to have almost a, a counter-cyclical um, approach to each other in that the uh, rand is obviously uh, correlates positively with, with the commodity cycle and, and the dollar tends to be negative. Um, and I, in terms of looking at, well, where is the rand really going? I prefer to look at it against um, either the pound or the euro. And, and that, those uh, charts tell a somewhat different story. Now, I mean, the rand has had, has had quite a good year. I think it's a, a key technical level where, uh, frankly, it could go either way. Uh, but um, the main point is that uh, uh, it, 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 it is ready for some kind of a move, but we basically have to watch both commodities and the policy uh, development in the short term. So from, from that point of view, I, I, I'm not, I'm not mm. really too mm. concerned about the dollar. Oh. 
I, I want to bring it back to the employment numbers that we saw this week, Nazmira. We also had a very strange ruling from the Competition Commission. The first time that public interest around equity ownership uh, trumped competition issues with the GPI um, uh, EPC Africa deal. The American private equity firm wanted to come and do a deal with GPI over Burger King. Competition Authority says no issues with the competition uh, matters here, but because there's no uh, BE ownership, we are going to prohibit this, uh, this merger. It could have created jobs, it could have brought in half a billion rand of FDI. When we look at how we make, create the conditions for employment, positive employment uh, in South Africa, that's certainly sending out the wrong signals. Yeah, so I was concerned by this ruling um, for exactly that, that reason. And especially when you start digging into the deal and you realize that the commitments that both um, entities, the seller and the buyer, were making in terms of job creation, in terms of um, resolving the um, black ownership issues going forward were, were actually quite significant. And the competition um, still made that ruling. However, what I would highlight is this still is going to go to the competition tribunal. And what we've seen historically is the competition tribunal tends to make um, far more um, level-headed rulings, mainly because it can then be appealed to the, to, to the high courts in South Africa. So I don't think this, um, the, the story has ended yet, Michael. Two important official documents on how to better manage South Africa's unruly public finances have been uh, the National Treasury's recent draft framework of a zero-based budgeting approach to South Africa's fiscal challenges and the Financial and Fiscal Commission's uh, recommendations this week to the National Treasury on the 2022 budget framework. And according to the FFC, South Africa's economic outlook is unlike any situation we've experienced before. I think that's fairly obvious. And it says that the situation requires informed and strategic policy from decision makers and a commitment to major structural changes to public finance. Nazmira, what do you take away from these two key inputs about South Africa's future fiscal sustainability? Because there, there has been a lot of bullishness about the outlook for South Africa. Underlying that, though, there is still major challenges in terms of debt, in terms of the public sector wage bill. All of those things haven't gone away. Exactly, Michael. So I think the bullishness comes from the fact that it's just a whole lot less bad than we expected it to be a year ago. So the deficits, um, the debt situation is not as bad as we thought it was going to be. But that doesn't mean it still isn't in a dangerous trajectory. And my main conclusions out of there were, one, um, in order to resolve the debt issue, we need growth. And in order to, to get growth, we need a growth plan. And it's not clear to me what the government's growth plan is right now. And we, the best example of this is what we've seen in the energy sector, where um, you have um, flip-flopping on policy, where the Minister of Minerals and Energy seems to be driven by, by ideology or special interests rather than what's best for the country. And that is the, the, the sad reality. It was at uh, ABSA's AGM where just share Raymond posed a question to Jason Quinn, the new CEO, about funding the car power ship uh, um, uh, bid which was one of the preferred bidders. We know now, though, that it is mired in corruption. The allegations still need to be ventilated and tested in court. Uh, but uh, Quinn was uh, pretty adamant when he said no deal will be financed uh, if there is any shred of corruption. We're going to do all our due diligence around legal, technical, uh, and nothing is confirmed just yet. But again, for a country now experiencing load shedding, emergency power is desperately required. So all of this uh, just leads to further delays, further sapping public confidence. What did you make of the two documents that were released? 
Well, I think, Michael, what's important here, they are converging documents. <clears throat> they look at the longer term and they say, look, you will have to put certain things in place if you want to underpin some of the better news that we've seen on the fiscal front. But as has been indicated, uh, that's very much a temporary uh, situation unless you underpin it with certain structural changes which are sustainable and irreversible. That's the important point. What you're proposing on the fiscal front must be irreversible and sustainable, and we're not there yet. But these two, two reports do help us to understand what needs to be done. And one hopes, of course, that although they are addressed to the Minister of Finance or his decision, uh, that what they are saying, their messages, will be shared by the Cabinet and by other decision makers. I think on the issue of the zero budgeting, <clears throat> I would just caution that although we all applaud the, the concept and would like to see us move in that direction, that the global experience has not been very positive, simply because, firstly, uh, it's a very, very time-consuming process and people run out of patience or run out of the technical skill to be able to deliver on it. Or alternatively, you get the politicians involved. They're not prepared to accept the rigor of, of that zero budgeting. But as far as the FFC report is concerned, I think the important point here is that they indicate what should be the foundations of a sustainable fiscal policy. But in particular, they take us back to the fundamentals that if you want to get this right, you need the public sector, its wage bill, all, all those associated issues to be, in fact, performance related. That issues of productivity in the public sector, getting delivery, I'm very interested in the aspects there that they emphasize at the local government level. That is a, a very much an Achilles heel of our whole public finance setup. And there are serious proposals there but I come back to the bottom line of all the technical arguments that you need effective oversight, leadership, and accountability to get the technical issues right. And they emphasize that as much as they emphasize the other aspects, that we, we really want to get our public finances under control and support the sustainable growth that we want to see in the years ahead. I think that's, that's the important message that comes through both these reports, mm. and I hope that we will all take them very seriously and draw their attention to the key decision makers. Well, Raymond, it just seems so disconnected from what's happening on the ground in reality. I just want to share what happened this morning. Um, I don't get a lot of time off to go and renew a car license. I went into the post office. They said, sorry, there's uh, a reason we can't do it here. You have to go to the traffic department. So I made some time to go through at seven o'clock in the morning, be first in the queue, which I've done in the past pre-COVID. No, sorry, sir, we don't open until 8.30 now. Why? I asked. Well, because of COVID. For what good reason? The curfew doesn't uh, preclude you from giving staff two or three hours to get there before six or seven o'clock in the morning. So I went home, went back at half past eight, load shedding. And so an entire morning wasted. And I'm sure there's a microcosm of so many experiences uh, of dealing with the public service. Uh, and Warwick, I want to bring you in here. What, what really struck me about the FFC, uh, FCC report, uh, or FFC report, I should say, is the zooming in on performance-based budgeting to say, right, let's rather start seeing how we can improve productivity by linking performance to, to KPIs and output rather than inputs. 
and really we just don't see enough of that. Uh, and this issue with the licensing department is just one example. I mean, people staying at home, uh, going to work later, still probably on full pay, and uh, are we delivering less of a service to the South African public? Very much so, Michael. Uh, look, I think we, we've probably got a bit of a, a structural uh, problem um, insofar as um, that kind of approach goes in, in, in this country. I mean, to, to a substantial degree, uh, South Africa has been deindustrializing over many years. And uh, of course, things such as efficiency and the kind of management consulting and systems approaches that go towards uh, carrying out those kind of improvements in, in, in companies uh, and uh, enterprises generally uh, come from the industrial sector. So I imagine that productivity skills in, in, in South Africa are generally uh, quite lacking. Uh, and so hence, I think the, the, the talk about a, a zero-based budgeting approach even though that's actually more of an accounting approach than actually a systems approach. And I think what you say about KPIs is absolutely right. I mean, you, you need that systemic kind of um, structural overview to actually um, to, to, to rebuild systems um, and assess their impact and cost and benefits and so on um, to, to, to get some kind of effectiveness going in the, in the public sector. And Nazmir, I want to bring you back in on this point around the, the public sector. What would you like to see happen to ensure that we just uh, get more bang for taxpayer buck? Because I'm sure that'll filter down into making it easier to register and do business and all of those other positive multipliers through the economy. Michael, we need accountability. And um, I don't know how easy that is to implement in a system that has gone so long with very little performance accountability. Mm. Um, but I think the starting point is making it much easier to get rid of underperforming people. Because th th that is one of the difficulties with South African labor law, is that it's actually quite difficult to get rid of the underperformers. So I think that would be helpful. I mean, the other thing I want to see as an economist is public sector wages as a whole being controlled for the, for the three mm. years, this mm. year and the following two. Because th that is really important in achieving debt sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. And starting so to measure it as a percentage of total output and start to anchor it to that uh, percentage rather than these runaway increases that we've seen specifically in cost of living increases and, you know, two bonds, uh, even if you, you're both in a household employed by the state, there's all kinds of fat in the system. And then just lastly, Raymond, uh, the spectral of expropriation without compensation remains there in the background. Very interesting column from Busi Mavuso of Business Leadership this week warning that land reform missteps could send us even further down the rankings. Uh, how, how do you read all of the dynamics at play here, considering that the local government elections are also just around the corner? Well, I think, Michael, what we need to understand is that this debate and indeed this negotiation in Parliament between the ANC and the EFF really revolves around getting the two-thirds majority or whatever has to be done. So that's part of the dynamic. But what is clear that although a lot of uncertainty is now being created around the issue of the state being a custodian uh, of property in the future uh, and the role of the courts has to some extent been diffused by, by the statement overnight by the president who made it clear that that's not ANC policy and the deputy president speaking in parliament earlier this week reiterated that the ultimate goal with with our land reform policy, which in principle we all accepted 
want to see happen will be the issue to in fact reduce uncertainty and not harm food security. All I'm saying at this point is that it is precisely this kind of dynamic, the way it's played out in Parliament and the way it has um, uh, been projected is that it's still generating a lot of uncertainty. There was a bad reaction from both banking and agriculture this week to, to the debate in Parliament and where it might end up at the end of June. So I think we're not out of the woods here yet and the great issue comes back to policy uncertainty. So much of what we've said earlier in our discussion all bears on, yes, this, this economy may well be at an inflection point, but if we want the good news to trump the bad news, we've simply got to reduce uncertainty and as Standard and Poor said this morning in their report, we have to now walk the talk. I know this is a very old cliche, but this is what permeates everything that we've been discussing today. We simply have to walk the talk in ways which reduce uncertainty and get the investment, the growth, the job-rich growth that we think yeah. we ought to be having in the years ahead. Yeah, if we're going to go from uh, uh, from less bad to good, that certainly what needs to happen. But right now, I think we've got to settle with uh, less bad than expected for the South African economy. That was Professor Raymond Parsons, joined by uh, Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo Asset Managers, and uh, Nazmira Muller, Head of uh, SA Investments at 91.